Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. We recently had the privilege of speaking with academic duo and longtime friends Adam Miller and Rosalind Welch about the new book that they co-authored together titled Seven Gospels, The Many Lives of Christ in the Book of Mormon. Their book examines the many ways that Christ shows up in the lives of individuals in the Book of Mormon, including Nephi, Abinadi, Abish, and others. And like the New Testament Gospels, these distinct witnesses both affirm and challenge each other, showing how Christ's message for each of us intimately reflects our own personal questions and circumstances. This episode not only guides us through these distinct witnesses, but also describes the close reading process that allowed Adam and Rosalind to observe such differentiation in the first place. By slowing down with the scriptures and zooming in on details, even things that seem mundane like punctuation and phrasing, scriptures can teach us things that we don't expect to learn. And just as there are a multiplicity of witnesses of Christ in the Book of Mormon, Adam and Rosalind make a case that our scriptural canon is a springboard to endless interpretations that speak to us according to our own spiritual needs. For those of you who don't yet know these two, Adam is a professor of philosophy at Collin College, and Rosalind is the associate director and research fellow at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute at BYU. Adam and Rosalind are two of the brightest minds in Latter-day Saint studies, and so to have them team up on a book like this is such a privilege, and we love talking to them as always. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation, and with that, we'll jump right in. All right, well, Adam and Rosalind, thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to get to talk to you both together, so welcome back. Thanks. It's so good to be here, and it's fun to be here with Adam. Agreed. Good. Um, so we love this book, Seven Gospels, The Many Lives of Christ in the Book of Mormon. Um, and I feel like before we can dive into the meat of the book, I, I would love for you to talk about the title and and tell us a little bit about what qualifies something as a gospel, but also talk about the subtitle. What do you mean, The Many Lives of Christ in the Book of Mormon? Because that totally caught my eye, and I actually really wasn't sure where you were going to go with it before we started. So I'd love to just start there. Rosalind, do you want to start maybe? Sure. Yeah. I can talk a little bit about the idea of the seven gospels. So we're taking that word um, from the way that it's used in the New Testament, right? Where we open up the New Testament with the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark. And each of those gospels, of course, is a narrative account of Christ's ministry from his birth most of them have a birth narrative, not all of them, um, through his ministry, uh, through his death, and then his resurrection. Again, most of them have a resurrection narrative, but not all of them. So using that basic template as a, a, a prophetic inspired narrative account of Christ's life, um, we looked for gospels in that sense in the Book of Mormon. And we found a number of them. King Benjamin to his people, shares the, the angel's proclamation of the life of Christ. We see Abinadi before Noah's courts, um, narrating the, the prophetically narrating the life of Christ. So we looked for um, these gospels that, that pop up through the Book of Mormon um, as anticipatory prophetic accounts of Christ's mortal ministry. Um, and we found these seven. There, there could be more, there could be less. Um, we don't really mean this as a kind of rigorous, uh, form-critical, scriptural genre, but okay. we found it to be a really useful lens for bringing together a number of passages that shared a lot in common. Thank you. Okay. Adam, you want to take the subtitle? Yeah, so the, the subtitle is um, The Many Lives of Christ in the Book of Mormon. And so as Rosalind said, we were we were especially interested in passages in the Book of Mormon 
that focused on some kind of account of Jesus's mortal life. Uh, but we're also interested in the way that Jesus's life was manifest uh, in the lives of the prophets in the Book of Mormon, right? The way that not only did they see different things and report different things and showed interest in different aspects of of Christ's life, depending on which prophet we were talking about, but the way that Christ was manifest differently in each of their lives. And so we kind of we kind of track through the Book of Mormon different manifestations of Christ's life as reported by these prophets and then different manifestations of Christ in the lives of these different Book of Mormon prophets. And so I guess, oh, sorry. Yeah, I'll just add one more thing. Um, You know what, what makes a gospel different from a biography, right? It has Mm -hmm. some elements of of biography in there in the sense that it's kind of structured around the the life and the happenings and the events of, of this individual. But what really makes a gospel different from a biography is the intent with which it was written. And for the gospels, both in the New Testament and especially the gospels in the Book of Mormon, the intent behind the writing of the life of Christ is not simply to inform us about the life of this one man, but it is to convert us. It's to elicit our belief and our faith. Uh, in the saving power of the life of Jesus Christ. So it's a very different kind of writing, very unique kind of writing that appeals to us, um, not only at the level of the intellect, um, but really at our deepest, most existential level. And, you know, for Adam and me, um, that kind of writing invites a certain kind of analysis. So as we were analyzing these these texts, of course, we bring to them our professional tools. Adam is a philosopher. I am a scholar of literature. Um, and we bring kind of specialized reading tools to these texts. And um, I hope that that bears interesting and enjoyable fruit in the book. But ultimately, we weren't just analyzing them as ancient texts, right? We were, we were reading them um, ourselves as invitations to belief and faith in Christ. And part of what we hope to do in the book is to model that kind of a reading that is really a response to the invitation that's implicit in the text to come to know and meet Christ um, in the arena of of this written record. Rosalind, I'm interested in the language that you just used in that in that answer. I think twice you said faith or you said belief and faith. Uh, I think probably intentionally. I can't imagine you've ever said something that wasn't very specific word for word what you meant. Uh, why are you making a distinction between between those two words? Yeah, well, I use the word belief because that's often the word that shows up in the scriptures, right? Um, in in John, um, it says specifically, the this was written with the intent that you might believe. And in the Book of Mormon, likewise, we see very similar language, right? Why have we written this so that our our children will know what we believe and will believe on those same things? Um, I think in the modern world, where we have a whole different epistemology, um, the idea of belief can take on a kind of different connotation. So I want to um, supplement that with the idea of faith and faithfulness. 
Whereas belief can, for us, modern, sometimes connote a kind of assent to an intellectual proposition. Um, I want to suggest the deeper, richer, more existential sense of faith and of faithfulness where we commit ourselves um, and we we respond with our whole self to the invitation that's implicit in that text, not merely kind of assent to the the propositional truths that are contained in it. Yeah. And Adam, is that is that how you see it too? And was your was your goal in in writing this book to uh, to help encourage both belief and faith in that sense, or do you bring do you bring a subtle distinction of your own in terms of your own goals to this book? No, I, I agree with everything that Rosalind just said. I think that uh, for both of us, quite explicitly. Uh, we conceived of the book as a kind of experiment in what Elder Maxwell called disciple scholarship, right? Mm -hmm. As an attempt to to not just bring our discipleship to our scholarship, as we have, I think, done for, for a long time now, but to reverse that direction and to try to bring our scholarship uh, to an explicitly devotional work, right? To see to see what we could do with the tools of scholarship strictly in the service of devotion. Uh, and in that sense, uh, to engage these texts in the Book of Mormon, not just as an object of, of analysis, as Rosalind put it, but to engage these texts as, as something in which we had a stake, uh, as something that was calling us uh, to respond, to change, to be a part of what was happening on the page, uh, rather than just uh, right, analyze what's on the page. I think what was really exciting to me about this book was maybe just that premise that you were bringing all of these tools that I that don't feel as familiar to me in especially in the context of sacred text and and just seeing what it feels like to uh, apply it to something so devotional. Um and I I guess why it was interesting is that I think um it it opened up all kinds of new avenues for me. Like these are like, these are all kinds of new ways that I can engage scriptures, but I don't have the expertise. And, and so I wondered if I wondered how you see um, you know, a lay person engaging sacred text in new ways. Because I think we're really good at hashing out, you know, what did the scripture, what does the scripture really mean? Like what did it originally mean? And if you're in a really interesting gospel doctrine class, like maybe they're going to go there and they're going to give you some context. And I like the idea that it can go the opposite way and really be a catalyst for new, new thought. And, and so I wonder to what extent you, you feel like you were extrapolating, like that you were taking something that started in the scriptures, but then you make it bigger as opposed to just mining for something that was originally meant to to be there. Because in so many stories, it felt like there was some sort of element of imagination that was genuinely nourishing. Like it, it was genuinely opening on into something that was, that I feel like would bring me closer to God. But I'm not sure that everyone would agree with me that it was really meant to be there in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. This is the question of something like intent, right? Authorial intent. I I talked yeah. a moment ago about you know the 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 general intent um, behind these texts is to elicit our saving faith and faithfulness in Christ. But specifically, you know, as to the the reading that I offer of a particular passage or the reading that that Adam offers, is that really what was intended by the author? Um, and especially when you go really deep and really slowly, the way that Adam and I like to read together, just looking at a phrase, um, 
our, our friend Joe Spencer is is famous for just looking at a pu- one punctuation mark, right? And 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 writing paragraphs on that. Um, you start to wonder, like, is this really, was this really intended by the author? And I'll tell you how I I think about that. Um, for me, the author's intention isn't the final category. Now it's relevant. And to the extent that I can, I like to think about that. You know, what was so-and-so really trying to say here? Um, but in the end, when scripture is canonized, then it becomes something more than just one person's perspective, as interesting as that might be. That puts it in a different category where the the intention of the prophet or the writer becomes relevant, but not definitive. For me, it's very important that there be textual basis for the claims that I make. So I think for every reading that I offer, I hope, you know, and even in a book like this, which is not meant for, um, you know, literary scholars, um, but I hope that you can follow my work. I hope I've shown my work and you can trace and see, yes, you know, this is the textual evidence that she is using to to support this claim. Um, So I want it to be textually solid. Um, But in the end, I think for Latter-day Saints, we have a really unique and wonderfully fruitful relationship to scripture because for us, unlike for Protestants in particular, scriptures don't have to be normative, right? They don't have to be dogmatically authoritative. They don't have to have the answer spelled out for the way that things are to govern the church and to govern our spiritual lives because we have living prophets to do that, right? We have prophetic revelation that is in charge of determining what is normative for the church as an institution. So that really frees up the scriptures to be something different for us. As you say, it frees them up to be not, to be a catalyst rather than a kind of list of rules or norms for the church. Um, Elder Oaks has talked about this, um, and and I think some people might get nervous to say, "Oh, you're you're making the scriptures, you know, somehow um, less important or you know um, less with less authority." But as Elder Oaks has said, it actually makes the scriptures so much more fruitful as a site to meet the spirit, right? Mm-hmm. As an arena for a kind of spirit aided process of inspiration and of revelation, and in particular. As we know, the most important revelation of all is the revelation of God in, in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a scholar that I love. Her name is Sandra Schneider, and she talks about um, the scripture as a text of meeting, playing on the idea of the tent of meeting, which is, of course, the tabernacle in the Old Testament um, that was built in the wilderness where God's presence would come and the Israelites could commune with him there. She talks about the text of meeting as this place now, this site where we can go, where God's presence infuses the words. And if we put ourselves there and spend enough time there and open ourselves to it, we too then through the spirit can experience some of that divine presence. Beautiful. Thank you. And and I guess my follow-up would be, do you think it's actually more fruitful to have to be having that conversation? If all the details were there and there and there and we could somehow it could be definitive, like would something be lost? Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. I think something would be lost because as Rosalind was was explaining it, the 
the point of these texts, the point of Scripture is not to tell us something. The point of Scripture is to do something. Uh, the point of Scripture is to uh, introduce us to God and invite us to participate with God uh, in the revelation of, of who and what He is. Uh, and so I think, I think one thing, as you pointed out a couple of minutes ago, one thing that you'll see all the way through the book is the way that uh, the readings that Rosalind and I give of these different passages, they involve us, right? Like her reading of those passages yeah. clearly involves her, right? Part of the substance of that reading is not just the substance of the text, but the substance of her own life. And part of my own readings, right, is is my own active participation then in that story uh, that the prophets are are telling in the Book of Mormon. And that that ultimately, I think, is is the measure for uh, any kind of useful devotional reading is the degree to which that reading uh, reveals and manifests God, right? God is the measure for a successful reading there, uh, and the degree to which I have participated in the process of helping to reveal God through my reading, that I think that's also a good measure in, in the context yeah. of a devotional reading. And and are those the things that make it a sacred text or or... Or is it about the canonization itself? The fact that we've agreed as a community that this text is sacred that makes it sacred. I, I think I, I think, think the community part. Uh, oh, I think the community part's very important because it's it's the invitation for us to do that together, right? Not me just by myself, uh, but for us to form a community in the work of reading these things together. And that also for Rosalind and I, I think, was explicitly a part of of what we wanted to model what this looks like mm -hmm. to not just read by yourself. Uh, in your closet, in your in your bedroom, at your kitchen table, but to read in conversation uh, with someone else as, as part of a community, even if a small one here. Yeah. Um, for me, well, one of the uh, one of the really fascinating things that um, came out of the book for me was your description of something called the Mormon Theological Seminar, which I actually did not know anything about, um, and uh, sort of what it illustrates potentially in terms of a way to engage sacred text. Would one of you mind describing what that, what that actually is and how it, and, and how you've participated in it? Go for it, Adam. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, uh, the project was uh, originally called the, the Mormon theology seminar. Oh. Uh, though these days, uh, you know, in conformity with, right. with prophetic mandate, it's now the, the, uh, the, 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 the seminar on Temple Square. Okay. <laughs> That's right, the <laughs> seminar on Temple Square. Uh, we we certainly played around with our options, uh, but this project goes back a long way now, all the way back really to 2008 in its first iteration, um, and it's really the place where I think Rosalind and I began our collaboration together as scholars. As I said before, we've we've worked for a long time as in the mold of Elder Maxwell's disciple scholars, but largely as scholars, right? Bringing our devotion to our scholarship rather than rather than the other way around it, as we tried to do in this book. And the main place that we've done that is is in this project called the the Latter Day Saint Theology Seminar. And for for the past uh, dozen years or so, we've uh, uh, collaborated with the Maxwell Institute uh, and the uh, uh, Willis Center uh, at the Maxwell Institute for, for Book of Mormon Studies in hosting each summer uh, for two weeks uh, a seminar-style investigation of uh, just a handful of verses in the Book of Mormon. Uh, 
what we do is we set aside two weeks. Uh, we gather together eight people, eight scholars, grad students or, or faculty, people with uh, uh, specialized training in their fields. We try to gather together an interdisciplinary group of people with different kinds of skills and different kinds of backgrounds. Uh, we try to make sure that the uh, the group uh, is split evenly between men and women. Uh, so we get four men, four women involved in the project. And then basically what we do is we we lock ourselves in a room uh, for two weeks with 20 verses of scripture. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, we take it apart word by word, verse by verse, punctuation mark by punctuation wow. mark uh, uh, to see to see what's in there, to see what what makes it tick, especially to see what's possible with these readings. Uh, especially what's possible in terms of, of what can be revealed about God uh, by way of the range of possible readings that those set of verses can can bear. And it's by far the most uh, rewarding and productive and transformative experience I've had, had as a scholar, and uh, I hope it, uh, it goes on for a long, long time to come. Wow. I wonder if, Rosalind, could you... So I, I think that's a um, that's an experience that most of us sort of lay Latter Day Saints will never have. You know, going that deep for th for that long, um, not just because we don't have the skills to, but um, you know, we have careers and other things going on. Could you try and translate for us maybe some of the principles from an experience like that that could be that that you know normal people like us might be able to apply? Absolutely. And, and I'd first just say, um, it might not be so far out of reach as it might seem. Um, of course, you know, people who don't have advanced degrees in literature and philosophy are, are going to produce different readings. And that's absolutely fine, as I said, right? As we've been talking about, there's not a single definitive reading that we're after here. Um, it's the it's the shared experience of seeking Christ. Um, but I know just in my own kind of limited experience, we have a wonderful Bible study group um, that was originally um, formed in our in in our ward as a way of welcoming in a woman who is not a member of the church, and so together we meet um, at every Tuesday night, and we have a leader, but we go deep into the scriptures. One of the most memorable. Um, meetings was when we read the book of Lamentations together with the sister in our ward whose um, 21 year old son had just been killed. Um, and it was an incredibly powerful experience. I, I know of a woman um, in my ward who for 20 years read the Book of Mormon daily with her friend, Ann Madsen, who was a legendary mm -hmm. Isaiah scholar here at the Book of Mormon. And when they lived together, they would they would meet together, but often they did it by phone. Um, and now my friend Shirley Widener is is over 90 years old. And that, you know, for that made up a major part of her life. So I think we can find these ways to collaboratively and deeply share the scriptures together in our families, but also outside of our families. So don't let that, um, uh, yeah. don't let the fact that, that we are scholars um, stop you from trying to do something very, very similar. Um, but I think the if there were to be one sort of method that we would recommend, it might be slowing down and taking a smaller chunk. We're really used to reading scriptures at the level of a chapter, 
or maybe a couple mm-hmm. of chapters, like in the Come Follow Me curriculum, right? And that's a that's a great way to read the scriptures. Um, but I have found it can be incredibly fruitful to either zoom way in or zoom way out and look at the structure of an entire book, for instance. But zooming in is a little bit more manageable, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I remember when I was when I was a little girl. I subscribed to a magazine called World Magazine. Um, and on the back of it, it had this thing that I loved. It would have these, these pictures um, that were super zoomed in details of a larger image. And then you had to kind of guess what it was a, a, a detail of. But mm-hmm. the reason why that was so fascinating is because zooming in so much for a moment disables the kind of habitual way that we process imagery, right? We look at something, we see it's a tree and that's it, we've moved on. But when you zoom into that detail, it forces you and, and it invites you to consider it um, without these preconceived ideas or lenses that sort of spit out automatically a certain a certain output. And I think the same thing is true about scripture. You know, as Adam was saying, ourselves are inherently a part of the reading that we do. At the same time, we don't want to kind of crudely project. I don't want to crudely project who I am now onto the text, right? And just sort of read it in a sort of surface application way, like, oh, this applies to my life in such and such a way. The way that I want myself to be involved in the text is that I want myself to be transformed by the text. I want to become a new self at the end of reading this text. So I want to be careful about not projecting my preconceived ideas and my preconceived sense of self onto what's there. Zooming in allows you to do that. It forces you to set aside the automatic outputs for a minute and open yourself up to something new. So I think that's a method and a setting that is available to every Latter-day Saint. I love that. I, I've been reading a little bit about the practice of Lexio Divina lately and and this idea that you only read until the reading becomes a prayer or you only read until the reading opens up onto something else. And hopefully that's something, I mean, maybe it is only a single verse. And when you really sit with that, it, it's amazing how big and expansive that verse can become when you're bringing your whole self to something so small. But I agree, like my my impulse is to read a chapter or read some, I don't know, I'm getting through the book. And so I'm marking my way through. And I I love this, like this total reorientation. Um, I'd love to just jump into some of your, to some of the gospels. Maybe there, I, I mean, I want to talk about all of them, but, but um, maybe we can start with in the beginning, you talk about the gospel of Mary, which totally surprised me that Mary would have a gospel in the book of Mormon. Can we just talk about the women and why, why you, why you selected these two? We have Abish and Mary and maybe some of the the gems that you've learned from either one. Yeah. You want me to tackle this first, Adam? Yeah, please. Okay. You're right. So as Adam said, um, having uh, female voices and male voices together has been an important part of the Latter-day Saint Theology Seminar, you know, from DNC 25. We know that the restoration from the beginning has intended to bring together male and female voices in expounding the scriptures and exhorting the saints. So that's a foundational method um, for our Latter-day Saint scripture reading practice. Um, and, and Adam and Joe very deliberately and intentionally brought that into the Latter-day Saint Theology Seminar. And of course, part of what Adam and I are doing is, is modeling that at the level of the, yeah. of the individual. Um, 
but it's a little harder in the Book of Mormon uh, to find. And as you as you will see, we we don't have equal parity, right? We have seven gospels, and two of them are um, from the perspective of women, and and five are from the perspective of men. But it was important to us to find ways to um, excavate women's perspectives and 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 women's experiences there. Um, so we knew one of the the first gospel that you encounter in the Book of Mormon is in First Nephi eleven where Nephi, of course, is having his, his panoramic vision and, and the Spirit shows him Mary. And then from there, teaches him about the condescension of God, relating it to the, the tree in Lehi's dream, and then goes on to briefly but powerfully narrate Christ's mortal ministry. So that is the first gospel that we encounter. And, it, you know, maybe we should have called it the gospel of Nephi, but I noticed something as I was initially reading these and, and preparing our book proposal, which is that um, as as the Spirit is showing this scene to Nephi, um, he's, Nephi sees Mary, this beautiful virgin, and then is told that she is carried away in the Spirit. Now, traditionally, that has been read as a kind of modest veil over <laughs> the moment of, of conception of Jesus Christ, right? But really, there's no textual evidence for that. And in fact, if you look at how that phrase gets used, carried away in the spirit, it's used, it's the very phrase that's used for Nephi to describe his own vision. He was carried away in the spirit. So I started to think, what if actually that moment is describing a kind of visionary experience that Mary herself had? Of course, we know that um, that 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 the angel came and told her about this. So she had divine communication about the meaning of the life of her son, and I think that's um, that's really a defensible reading. I think there, and what that opens up is that Mary's own maternal perspective is blended in to Nephi's perspective in this kind of really interesting. We might call it an intersubjective vision. A vision that brings two different perspectives together. Um, we know that that can happen. Um, in the um, in the book of Acts, we see um, that a man named Ananias has a vision of Paul's vision on the road to Damascus. So we know these kind of intersubjective visions um, are scripturally attested. So what happens if we posit that Mary's maternal perspective is, is blended in some way into Nephi's vision? And I started to, I really focused on the unique image of Mary holding the child in her arms. This is a very powerful moment in Nephi's vision, and it's an image that we don't get anywhere else in the Book of Mormon or in the New Testament of Mary cradling and holding mm -hmm. the child. Um, and I, and of course, as a mother, that hit me in such an embodied and somatic way. Right? I, I could feel what it was like to hold my own child in my arms, and I started to reflect on the kind of wisdom and revelation that happens through the act of holding a child. When you hold a child, an infant, one thing that you your body knows is that over time, that child is going to get heavier and heavier and heavier. And eventually, you're going to have to put that child down. And the child's going to walk away from you and come back for a moment, but then go off again. This is the rhythm of motherhood. And so it helped me to see the doctrine of condescension that's taught in this passage so powerfully in a very new way. 
sometimes we think about we we understand you know, that that the condescension of God is is the love that the Father and the Son had in sending the Son to Earth to take on a body and live with us and among us. But it's not just that vertical movement from heaven to Earth. When we put Mary into the mix, we see that it was also a going out and among. There's a kind of horizontal movement that happens as well, that Christ was going to leave Mary's, the shelter of Mary's arms and was going to go out into the world and expose himself to every buffeting of the mortal condition that we experience, hunger, thirst, fatigue, illness, depression, anguish of soul. Um, he would go out and go forth and experience that with us. So for me, um, bringing Mary's maternal perspective into that passage added an entirely new and incredibly rich dimension, theological dimension, to the idea of the condescension of God. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, Adam, anything you want to add about the Gospel of Mary? Yeah, I would just, I would just say that what Rosalind just described to you is a beautiful example, I think, of the way that the method works yep. like the mm -hmm. way that if if you slow down uh, enough that you don't already know what the words are going to say yeah if you slow down enough that you no longer know what they mean then they can tell you something that you didn't already see right they can show you something that you haven't seen before and you you can discover that the words that are used to describe mary uh, are the same words that are used to describe nephi himself being carried away in a vision and yeah. that can open on to a whole new, uh, a whole new sense of what's involved in, in the condescension of God and in, in Christ's incarnation and in the work of atonement itself. And I think that's that's really it's a really good, really powerful example of what's at stake here. Yeah, and it seems clear to me too, Rosalind, that your experience as a mother is what was. I mean, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, obviously, but was to some extent driving driving some of these insights for you. And I, and that kind of goes back to what you're both saying earlier, that we can bring, it's, it's not just okay, but it might be necessary and, and truly um, helpful to bring our own experiences and stories into the, into the scriptures and find, find what echoes there, there are. Um, one of the, one of the gospels that really caught my attention was the, uh, was the gospel of Abinadi. Um, the book refers to him as a prophet's prophet. Adam, that may have been your term if I remember. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. what, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Abinadi is an interesting figure in the Book of Mormon. Uh, because unlike someone like Nephi or King Benjamin, uh, he's not an insider, right? He doesn't have any institutional power. He's not a king. Uh, he's not the high priest. Uh, he kind of blows in from nowhere, like uh, like a newspaper or a uh, you know, the classic, uh, sage, sagebrush, just tumbling down the street <laughs> through your Western, uh, through your Western, uh, town. Right. Uh, he kind of blows into town like that out of nowhere with these, uh, prophetic recriminations for, uh, King Noah and his court. And, and in that sense, uh, he's a prophet's prophet because this is the mold for prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, in the main, in, in the Old Testament, prophets are not institutional figures, right? They are uh, they're outsiders uh, who come in the name of the Lord to critique those impositions mm -hmm. of power. Uh, and in that sense, Abinadi really is a prophet's prophet, and he, and he fits that classic Old Testament mold. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I I wonder um, 
if there is some application today of the of the Old Testament model of prophet, obviously when we in Latter-day Saint tradition say prophet, we are typically referring to the president of the church. Um, if not, you know, we're typically re- at least referring to top, you know, top leaders and authorities in the church. Um, and they seem to, I, I think it's fair to say that they sort of fuse, and we've been talking about this a little bit, even recently with George Hanley about Max Weber, who had this um, this model of the priest and the prophet prophet playing different roles. The priest being the sort of institutional authority, the prophet being the outsider, you know, potentially speaking, you know, speaking truth to power. Um, is there, in our tradition, is there room for this Old Testament uh, model of, let's call it lowercase p prophethood? You know, is there is there a chance for us to have an outsider, you know, telling us something that we really need to hear? Or, or are we somewhat, and I don't want to use this term negatively, but are we a little bit exclusive with our prophetic authority? Does it only, uh, does prophethood in today's day and age only apply to that sort of like joint priestly authority? Well, I think, I think we would be in a sad state of affairs if it only applied to that sort of priestly authority, part of the vision of the restoration. I think that was foundational for Joseph Smith from the start was that he he wasn't the only one who had special access to God, but that the whole point of the restoration was to give everyone that kind of access to God, to give everyone a chance to see what he'd seen and hear what he'd heard and feel what he felt, to give everyone that same kind of first-person uh, experience of the divine. And I, and I think Joseph was wide open, of course, to the idea that uh, that this wasn't the kind of thing that could be corralled just within the confines of some one individual church either. So certainly, I think in that sense, though I also wonder, your question, uh, Tim, makes me wonder if if we don't do a certain kind of disservice to President Nelson or President Oaks or, or, the, or the apostles, if we don't do a certain kind of disservice to them by buttonholing them as institutional figures and refusing to hear them as outsiders who are trying to tell us something that we don't want to hear. Right. Uh, and if we can keep them safely in their boxes, right, as CEOs uh, of a of a billion dollar corporation, then then we don't have to hear their prophetic message and we don't have to heed it. Yeah, that's interesting. Rosalind, any any thoughts here? Yeah, um, I, I, I really like the question. I like thinking about Abinadi in this way, and I I like how Adam answered it. And I, I agree with what he said. I think there's an important dimension that. Abinadi in particular brings to this idea of the the prophet as the outsider who comes in, um, comes in speaking truth to power. You know, Adam talked about the tumbleweed in the Western. Um, and maybe you think about this outsider prophet coming in to redress um the 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 oppression of the vulnerable um with guns blazing, right? Maybe we think about him coming in with his own power to speak to power, um, meeting power with power. Um, but that's really not the the image that we get in Abinadi, right? In, indeed, this is a prophet in chains. He doesn't burst his bonds like Nephi does. Um, he stays chained and he delivers his gospel of Christ in chains. And and in as we as Adam alluded to, it was striking the extent to which the witness, the the situation of the prophetic witness matched the portrait of Christ that they preach. 
And the portrait of Christ that emerges in Abinadi's teaching is of a passive savior who is bound and goes like a lamb to the slaughter silently. Abinadi really focuses on the silence of, of Christ, um, which was a little funny to me because Abinadi is such a prodigious talker. <laughs> but his Christ is silent. So to that, um, to that wonderful bracing idea of the of the prophet as an outsider who comes in to protect and redress the poor. I will say a teaching that the Book of Mormon amply attests throughout, we see this burning pathos and empathy for the poor and the marginalized and the dispossessed. But that witness is always delivered devoid of power. The witness is, is delivered passively and gently and meekly uh, as, a, as a son submits to his father. So I, I think that would be an important nuance to, to add to this discussion. Yeah. That one, reminds me. One, oh, go uh, ahead, Adam. Sorry. One really striking thing, of course, about Abinadi as well is that, is that the one arrow he has in his quiver uh, is that he is going to lecture uh, King Noah and his priests on how exactly to finally read Isaiah. And he's not going <laughs> to shut up until he tells them how to do it. Uh, and the whole his whole sermon unfolds is essentially is an extended commentary on poetry. This is this is his method. Uh, it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's why he's a favorite. I was going to say it. Um, Abinadi's chapter also reminded me of King Benjamin because in well in in one sense King Benjamin is one of the gospels where he actually is in a position of power. But the thing that I hadn't really considered is that. Throughout his testimony, like he spends his entire life waiting. He never really has, he never really has this like triumphant moment of being right. And it, and in and I had kind of seen this in Abinadi too that like he dies. Like he he in in some ways like they were a witness that you could look at and see there like where was the vindication where they could just feel so right. But they there was so much conviction in the waiting and in the quiet and in the chain and in the chains and and. Um, I felt like just having those side by side really illuminated something that I, I've never really noticed. Like to me, King Benjamin was all power and just he's the king and has all this wisdom. And and um, it was just interesting to see in what ways he spent so much of his life waiting for something, waiting for something. Yeah. Aubrey, that was that's such a great observation about um, Benjamin, um, who is who is a powerful king. And of course, we see him in his vulnerability in his old age, um, where he, he talks about he's he's shaking and he's trembling. He can barely stand here. He's he's a portrait of um, of power that has been given away to time, given away to life. And, you know, failure is really an important topic that shows up again and again. One of the reasons why there are seven gospels is because um, it has to be preached again and again and again. And there's a cycle of of failure and of loss that accompanies um, the cycle of proclamation. And it, with Benjamin, of course, as powerful as those chapters are, you know, Mosiah two through five, um, the church that, that Benjamin starts is ultimately fails, right? And has to be um, sort of gain uh gain strength and revitalization from Alma's um Alma's restoration of the gospel there. So your your point is so important that um that failure is kind of central to the way that that, that proclamation works mm. in the Book of Mormon. 
And maybe that brings us to like, let, let's talk about Alma. I, you know, Adam, we've had so many conversations with you about, about justice and the law. And, and so I really, really liked this section about sin as a dilemma. And so I'd love for you to just talk about that. What do you learn from Alma about sin? And so one of the chapters that we look at uh, is Alma chapter 7, which I think contains some of the Book of Mormon's most unique teachings uh, about Jesus Christ and the atonement, some of the most powerful stuff that we have in all of in all of Latter-day Saint scripture. Uh, one of the things that I noticed reading the chapter, really trying to slow down and pay attention uh, to the details, was the way that Alma uses a word that nobody else in all of Scripture uses, uh, and he uses it twice, uh, and he uses it both times to describe the plight of the sinner. And the word uh, the word that he uses is dilemma, right? He describes the plight of the sinner as a dilemma. Uh, that's unusual, right? We get a lot of stuff in Scripture where the sinner is described as a kind of, uh, as a rebel, as a kind of enemy to God, uh, uh, as someone who's uh, who's in open rebellion against the commandments, and there's certainly something to that, I think. Uh, but from the perspective of of a sinner, you know, from the perspective of someone who's sinning, uh, I suspect it pretty rarely feels like you are a rebel. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, sin pretty rarely feels like a rebellion, and, and I think more often than not, what sin feels like is a dilemma, right? It feels like. Uh, uh, the literal meaning of the word dilemma, which is uh, to be caught between two things, right? To be caught between two propositions, to be stuck here in a way between a rock and a hard place, to be trapped and to not be able to find a way out. And Alma's description here of being a sinner as a kind of dilemma, uh, it strikes me as a, as a kind of very clinical, medical, charitable description of of how miserable that experience is but it's also the kind of description that he only ends up giving after he has given up the power associated with the judgment seat and committed himself to to the purity of the word to the purity of preaching right he gives up all of his earthly worldly power to judge people and he commits himself to preaching the gospel instead and once he gives up all that power and forswears judging and commits himself to preaching, then what does sin look like to him? Sin looks like a dilemma to him, uh, a dilemma that he can then, with his preaching, help help people solve. Uh, and I thought that's I thought that was quite striking and, mm. and actually quite helpful. What comes up for me when you say that is, I, I and I hate to ask either of you to sort of theologize right on the spot, but in the in the version of sin where we think of it as a dilemma. What's the what's the corollary when it comes to repentance? So, if sin is you know traditionally rebellion, and repentance is traditionally um, you know uh, turning away from that rebellion and you know being forgiven, what is what is the repentance? Uh, it, yeah, what is the uh, uh, dilemma version of of repentance? I think one of the things this this striking about Alma seven. And that's also something that you start to notice when you when you slow down is that when you slow down, you notice not just the details of what people are saying, but you start to notice too what they aren't saying, right? And if you if you pay careful attention to what 
to the way Alma describes uh, Christ's atoning work in Alma chapter 7 is that he never uses that kind of penal, legal language of, of punishment, of justice, of pay, repaying debts. Instead, he frames it as as a kind of grand cosmic act of empathy in which the whole point of the atonement is for Christ to put himself in our shoes, suffer with us what we are suffering so that he can then help us out of this dilemma by by healing us. And not just healing us from sin, but healing us then uh, from death, from pain, from sickness, from suffering of of every kind. Uh, it's a very kind of, it's a very spacious, very global, very broad sense of what's at stake in, in Jesus's atoning work uh, that I think fits nicely with with the Alma's description of of sin as a kind of dilemma. Yeah. Um, could we? Oh, sorry, Aubrey, were you gonna go ahead? Well, I was just gonna see if Rosalind had anything to add, but maybe one follow up to that would be: Do you see a place for things like, uh, like confession and, you know, withholding the sacrament or, um, what are we calling them now? Councils of love. Like, how does that fit into this same paradigm somehow, or is that does that become problematic? If I were to, like, take a an initial stab at this using sort of the the experimental theology found in original grace, I think it's possible that some of those things are what is needed in in certain in certain cir- circumstances. Uh, but I probably I would I would imagine that a God who you know loves us so individually um, would hope that we're applying uh, you know applying whatever repentance steps are necessary on a very individualized basis based on, you know, based on what is needed and what is helpful and what urges, uh, you know, any given person ourselves most, uh, most likely to, you know, towards growth. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't see any reason why those, those things couldn't be, uh, couldn't be helpful in, in really dramatic, really, really profound ways. Sometimes what people need is, is a clean break. Sometimes what they need is a chance to, to feel like they've stepped back and really started over. Uh, it's, it's again, uh, as Tim put it, a question of what particular good is, is needed here and what form should that take to help people out of the dilemma they find themselves in. And, and also, you know, thinking along these terms, oftentimes the tool that sin uses, um, is self-deception, right? We are, um, we're dis- we're we're tempted to deceive ourselves and to live in a fantasy world that it's all about justifying myself and that's it's not impossible but it's really really hard to break out of that on your own um you almost always need another mind to break in and impose itself on the deception on the fantasy and to let the sunlight in. And in in the best case scenario, that kind of loving pastoral relationship between a trusted bishop um, and myself can can be that other mind, right? That with aided by the spirit can can break in and can free me from my my deception. Um, so I, I think there definitely is a role for the communal. Um, as we talked about, and as the Doctrine and Covenants teaches us, um, it should never be a kind of coercive acting upon, but but hopefully a collaborative and loving acting with and acting together. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I know we're already push, getting pushed on time a little bit, but there are two other Gospels that we 
really wanted to talk about, one of them being the Gospel of Abish, um, who is in the book referred to as a woman servant who plays sort of a key role in the story of um, Lamoni and his his household's uh, conversion. Um, Rosalind, you say that uh, there's sort of a necessity to use something you call informed imagination uh, when it comes to Abish's story. I think that I, I counted verses and it looks like her story spanned roughly 14 verses and she's specifically mentioned in about in about four of them, I think. Um, so there's not a ton of text to go on here. What what is the pro, what is the uh, practice of informed imagination? Is it, it and could you give this the sort of uh, reasoning for why that might be an appropriate way to engage scripture? Yeah, well, as we talked about earlier, um, it, we know that women were were a part of um, of Nephite culture and Lamanite culture here in this case, um, but we have to work a little harder to uncover their perspectives. And as I said, from DNC twenty five, it's a foundational precept of Latter Day Saint um, scriptural practice to bring women's and men's perspectives together to bear. So we were determined to uh, to find a way to do that. And Abish is such a um, a rich and enigmatic and intriguing and powerful character here um, in Alma 19. Um, I think I, I, I called it informed imagination. And, and the informed part is that we want to be careful. We don't want to kind of crudely project a modern kind of feminist sensibility on the text. That would do violence to the text. And, and in the end, because of that, it wouldn't really get us anywhere. Again, we would, we would come out the other side with the exact same um, output that we put into it, right? It would be kind of come a kind of circular mm. system. Um, and we also don't want to speculate wildly, right? We don't want to make claims about women's experience that are indefensible on the text's own terms. Um, for Adam and me, we are faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we recognize the kind of interpretive um, authority of, 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 um, of, church institution and church leadership. So we also wouldn't want to posit um, a reading that that wildly contradicted church teachings, for instance. But in the end, the kind of close reading that we're talking about isn't finally historical, right? It's not really about um, making sure that that what we're saying is, is based in history. As I said, it's about, as we both said, it's about um, finding ourselves transformed by an encounter with Christ in Scripture, finding finding these hidden pictures of Christ in the text. Um, and we, we think we found one with Abish, um, in, in the way that, um, that she acts to put into action, um, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see it narrated in the other gospels. So this, this, well, and Adam, if you have something to say about Abish, please jump in. But I, this makes me wonder though about the book of Helaman because there, and, and this, I'm I'm worried about this idea of something becoming circular that I like what you said that what you put into it you often pull right back out of it. And so I talk about the times when we read something that is troubling. Like and it is our it's probably some of it is our modern sensibility, some of it just seems like uh like objectively problematic. And so how do you deal how do you wrestle with those texts when it really feels like that's what's in the book without just creating a, a book in your own image? And and you sort of you touch on this a little bit with the book of Helaman and and I know Rosalind you say specifically that 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 was a book that you really struggled with. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, 
the key to happiness is having low expectations. And my problem was that I always came to the book of Helaman with the wrong expectations because often we'll read it at Christmas time, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's sort of put as a, as a counterpart. Um, it's the book of Mormon's nativity story. And so I would often come to it Christmas time and I'm wanting cozy, warm feelings and this kind of loving, soft focus portrait of, of Christ. And that's not what you find in the book of Helaman. So I, for a long time, I was really put off by it. Um, it's a very violent book. Um, a lot of it, or I, I should say Samuel's prophecy includes very violent passages. Um, and, and there's a lot of talk about prophets as, as foretellers and, and prophetic vindication. And, and that just didn't, um, didn't sit right with me for a long time. Um, so how I tried to deal with that is, not to, as you say, not to dismiss it, right? Not to find a way to cut it out, um, not, but also not to reject it. I just mm -hmm. kind of let it sit for a while. Um, and actually, it was the process of writing this chapter that had me come back to it with open eyes, with um, a larger set of tools um, in the interim Um since I since I first closed my heart to the Book of Helaman, I I got to know a theologian named Adam Miller, and um, you know as all of us have been, I have been deeply influenced by his theology. Um, so I, I came back to the text now this time with a different kind, and and it's not just you know an intellectual theology, but it, it's changed the way that I see God in the world and experience God in the world. So I, I came back to it this time with a different set of intellectual tools and more importantly, a different set of experiences with God. And the text opened to me in a different way. Um, and and what I what I found, what I think I found, um, is that, you know, Samuel makes these two prophecies. One is very hopeful. Christ is waiting. Christ is about to come down. The other one seems extremely negative and violent. There's a sword hanging over your head. And the only way to escape it is to repent. And what I was able to do was to see how these two prophecies actually may be one. Prophets really only have one message, and that is Christ. That Christ is coming and he is waiting in the wings to come to us. How we hear that message and how we experience it in the world depends on whether we see it from the perspective of sin or from the perspective of faithfulness. What I think is Adam's masterwork, the first book that he ever wrote, um, contains a reading of the first chapter of Romans that has really changed everything for me. And and Adam, you can correct me. I'm this is a this is a gonna be a horribly simplified, but but what he finds there in the first chapter of Romans is that God is with us in the world. And the 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 life and ministry of Jesus Christ is the strongest possible witness that God is with us in the world. God is faithful and righteous. He loves us and he wants to make us righteous too. When we see God in the world, when we experience him in the world, we experience his love that way. But if we sin, if we don't, if we reject God's love, we push him out of the world. We want to push him far away. He's far away in heaven. And then his love starts to feel to us like a punishment. 
like a punishment that comes from far away, like lightning that comes from heaven or like storms or like earthquakes, these acts of God as a violent retribution. But really, that's the perspective of sin that is blinding us to the God that is here with us in Jesus Christ and his love here. So with that lens, when I went to the the prophecy of Samuel, um, I saw it totally transformed in my eyes. And I saw the ways in which Samuel shows that the sufferings that the Nephites experience, in particular, the most horrific moment when pregnant Nephite women are trampled under the feet of the fleeing Nephites, we see that that suffering is actually not God's suffering, is, is not God's punishment, right? Is, this is not a retributive punishment coming from heaven. Actually, this is the hell that the Nephites have made for themselves by rejecting God and pushing him away. That really changed the whole way that I see Samuel's prophecy and even those really, really difficult parts to read became meaningful to me and important to me because they illustrate the hell that we make for ourselves when we refuse to see God here present with us, giving us love and giving us faithfulness. Hmm. Adam, anything to, anything to add there? Yeah, well, I'm happy to endorse that reading of, of the of the ten people in the world who uh, who read my first book. Rosalind has surely been the most affected by it. I'm happy. I'm happy that that's true. Okay, I so Rosalind, I I found that um, that part of the book, your relationship um, with the book of Helaman, to be really compelling, and I I think that story that you just told of being sort of transformed by a, a new and potentially better understanding of God, I found that to be really beautiful. But it simultaneously raised the question, or I shouldn't say but, I should say and, it simultaneously raised the question for me of if it is ever um, appropriate to dismiss or reject or just say no to uh, to scripture or to sacred, sacred text. I mean, there's like, we could look perhaps more easily than we could look at the book, at the Book of Mormon, at the Bible. And there are some... There are some, you know, chapters there that almost become caricatures of themselves, you know, with Elisha, you know, cursing 40, 42 children and two she bears coming out of the woods and and killing these children. Or, um, you know, on a more like sort of scary and serious note, like these um, commandments from the Lord to uh, for, you know, the house of Israel to destroy entire peoples. And so I wonder if like your reading of the book of Helaman makes me wonder, am I being called upon in some way to make peace with this text? Or can, can I just say that one's really, that one's really not for me. I'm going to continue to, to hold my grudge, you know? <laughs> well, I'll say something and then I want to hear what Adam has to say, but um, I think it's okay for a minute to live, uh, to, to observe your own reaction to those texts, right? I certainly, we don't need to right away rush to some kind of reconciliation. That doesn't work in interpersonal relationships and it, it, I don't think it works in the relationship that we have with scripture. So I would never want to say, you need to figure out how to make this work and you need to get there now. Hold your grudge um, for as, as long as it lasts, but don't give up on the text. I'll speak for myself. Um, and I think that other faithful people could have other, other conclusions here. But for me, that it is canonized scripture 
means that I am subject to it in certain ways, all of it, even the really, really hard stuff. And I can't throw it away, but I'm called on to live with it. Maybe like a really difficult family member that I'm called on to love and to live with and to stay with. Um, And maybe part of what I can do is through my own interpretation, which as we've been talking about, brings to bear my whole life experience and and every gift of the spirit that I've been given and also every scar that I bear. And maybe I can find a way to redeem that text. Relationships are always about giving and receiving. We receive new selves from the scripture. And I think in our act of reading and interpretation, we can also give new being to scripture when when it's called for. But I want to hear what what Adam thinks about that. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I, I think we probably in general do scripture a disservice if we come into our reading of it with the expectation that it's going to provide something like a consistent, systematic account of the nature of God and the whole of reality and our place in it. In my experience, it's not it's not that kind of thing. Scripture is, scripture is a kind of grab bag of thousands of years worth of uh, often profoundly uh, divergent descriptions of different experiences that people have had of God, uh, both individually and collectively. And uh, as a scripture, it's my responsibility to take all of those accounts seriously, as Rosalind put it. Uh, but it's my responsibility especially to take them seriously as occasions for God to reveal himself to me, not as occasions for me to simply nod my head and agree with whatever I think mm-hmm. it says at the surface level of the text. And yeah. so do you think that that might look like the conversation continuing, like being troubled by a text and like is that is the wrestle that ensues after recognizing dissonance part of part of that conversation with God? It is the conversation. I like that. That's right. Well, thank you both so much. There, there's so many things we didn't get to. Is there anything from the book that is especially close to your heart that you want to make sure that we talk about before we close? I'll just say, I'll just say one thing. Um, I love the Book of Mormon, and one of the things that is so special about these seven Gospels, and that is really unique to the Book of Mormon that we don't get in the New Testament is the way in which each of these accounts of Christ's life comes packaged with a developed doctrine of salvation in Christ. In the New Testament Gospels, that work by the body of Christ was still in process. So we don't get a fully developed theology of how Christ saves us. But in the Book of Mormon, uh, prophetically, both of those exist at the same time and they're intertwined. And so to read about Christ in the Book of Mormon is to be invited to come to him and be saved in him. And I think it offers truly a uniquely powerful experience of Christian discipleship um, that never stops giving in, in my experience. I come back to it again and again. I zoom in on a different detail, um, and time and again, it shows up for me 
with a picture of Christ and with an invitation to come unto him. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, Adam, yeah. Along, yeah, along the same lines, any, any final thoughts? Uh, amen to everything Rosalind just said. I, I love the Book of Mormon too. And even more than I love the Book of Mormon, I think I love reading the Book mm -hmm. of Mormon. And even more than I love reading the Book of Mormon, I love reading the Book of Mormon with friends. But I love reading the Book of Mormon with, with the people who I care most about in this world. Uh, that, uh, I think, more than any place else, uh, is where God has shown himself to me in those experiences of, uh, of letting down my guard with the text, of letting down my guard with other people, uh, and then of finding there together uh, an expression of, of God's love that, that I have, that I wasn't prepared to see beforehand. And uh, if there's anything that people get out of the book at the end of the day, I, I would hope it would be that hope that they can share in that kind of experience themselves. Certainly. That, so I think much. that's, yeah, that's, that's what I got out of it is the, the fact that you two were revealing so many unexpected insights gave me, gave me hope that my, my reading can do that as well, especially and as permission. I bring and permission yeah. to do it. Yeah. yeah. So thank you so both so much for uh, bringing your skills and talents um, to bear here. I, it's really, really important work. We really enjoyed it. And thank you for, thank you for having this conversation with us. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thanks, Tim and Aubrey. Always good to be with you. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Rosalind Welch and Adam Miller. We'd love for you to check out their book. It's called Seven Gospels, The Many Lives of Christ in the Book of Mormon. And if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really does help us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening and as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.